This morning we're going to be in, in two different texts that are held together by a very clear cord. Uh, and I would invite you to turn in your Bibles uh, first to Genesis chapter 11 and also to Acts chapter 2. You'll be in both of those passages this morning. Uh, and as you are turning, let me tell you a little story. In the year 1436, in the city of Mainz, Germany, there was a, a goldsmith named Johannes Gutenberg. If that name sounds familiar to you at all, uh, it is because he invented a device that, uh, from that point forward, transformed the face of Christianity throughout the world. Uh, using a metal alloy printing uh, typeface, texts could now be printed and distributed widely. Of course, we know this as the printing press. Gutenberg invented the printing press, which launched the printing revolution throughout Europe and through into the world. And what this meant uh, was that up until that point, whereas texts had to be translated by hand, arduously, this meant that now ordinary people could have printed texts in their own language, which would only have been accessible to the most wealthy. Books were rare. They were seldom. They were, they were very difficult to attain. Of course, the, one, the only book to come out of Gutenberg's press specifically was the Holy Scriptures at that point, uh, written in the language of Latin. And in the early 1500s, a Roman Catholic theologian named Desiderius Erasmus got a hold of one of these copies in Latin and translated it from Latin into the original Greek. Now, of course, Des, uh, Erasmus was a devout papist. He was, uh, contributed to the Catholic Church, uh, but yet he still thought it would be better to have the language of Scripture in Greek, uh, which was all good and well until a young monk named Martin Luther got a hold of Erasmus's translation and went from the Greek into the German. Right, this was revolutionary as, as Luther translated it from the language of the elite into the language of the people. So in 1552, the, the German Bible is released to the world. And of course, the Reformation, like wildfire, spread throughout Europe. When the Reformation reached the shore of a tiny North Atlantic nation called Iceland, they again felt the need to have a Bible in their own language. And so, in 1584, Bishop Guthbrander Thorluxen faithfully translates a Bible into the Icelandic language. And of course, we know, we have a testimony of men and women who strived after having the Bible in their own language. Tyndale, Judson, Carey these names that are familiar to us, the people who have, have taken the Bible and translated it into the language of the people that they were working with so that they could have a faithful word of God for themselves. So from the, the beginning, the, the reformers had this dedication and this conviction that people needed to have the word of God in their own native tongue uh, in order to remove it from under the sole control of the church elite, the bishops and the priests. And as we consider the whole aspect of language, language is and has always been the, the chief defining marker of cultures all throughout the world, of people groups, of nations. 
Right? What is it that ties families together? It's not, usually, it's not always geographical, right? Families don't always stick together in the same area. It's not, you know, hobbies. It's not interests. It's that families all speak the, the same language. And from the very, very earliest time, God has used both the dividing and the uniting of languages for the glorious purposes of redeeming his people. And that will be the focus of our study this morning. I would invite you to please stand with me for the reading of God's word from Genesis chapter 11 and Acts chapter 2. Genesis 11, starting in verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. And the Lord God came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Now turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Starting again in verse 1. Now when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Philamphia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors to Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own language the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. This is God's word for God's people. You may be seated. And would you pray with me? Father, as we consider the grand scope of redemption from the very earliest of times, from the very first human culture, the first civilization, until the moment of us sitting here today in this church, in this 
city, in this location on the earth. How amazing is it that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us through a language that we can understand? That you, the mighty God of the universe, you stepped down and presented us your holy word. And that you have called us as your people to plumb the depths of this word so that we can fully come to know you and understand you and how you have worked throughout human history. And so, Lord, as we are looking at this, this biblical theological scope of language, we pray that you would help the words be from your spirit this morning. Lord, help me as I, as I preach the word. Help uh, the words would come out that you have intended for me to say. And if there's anything that I say that is not of you, please help it to pass from everyone's mind immediately. Lord, empower your word through your spirit. And may we be all strengthened and encouraged through the preaching of your holy word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So clearly we can see this connection between Babel on one hand and Pentecost on the other. Uh, to give you a little context for the, the, the Tower of Babel, uh, previous to that chapter of chapter 11 is chapter 10. If you look at it, it's a genealogy of the sons of Noah, of Shem, of Ham, and of Japheth, and where they all were dispersed to after the flood. This is considered, uh, it's oftentimes called the Table of Nations. Uh, chapter 11 Rewinds to explain to us as the readers of God's word uh, the means and also the reason why these peoples were dispersed and spread throughout the earth. And if you recall God's very first command to Adam in the garden before the fall, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. This was God's command to Adam, and yet when we look at Babel, we see that these people were doing everything in their power to rebel against that command of God by desiring to come together and to make for themselves a nation. Let's dig into this passage. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. Now, while we don't know exactly how much time has transpired from the time of the flood, from Noah's day... Until the events of Babel, we know that it could not have been very long. Right? It, it makes sense that everyone is united under the same language and in the same area. In fact, Genesis 10.25 refers to the great-grandson of Noah, whose name was Peleg, whose name literally means divided or separated. And of course, the traditional understanding of this is that Peleg represented uh, the time of Babel. Uh, uh, Babel took place in Peleg's day, uh, which if that is the case, that would mean that Noah himself was alive and present at the events of Babel. Uh, the passage speaks of the people uh, migrating from the east. And all throughout, especially the first several chapters of Genesis, when we see this language of Migrating from the east. Uh, heading east was a symbol of moving out of the presence of God. Right? When Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, they move east of Eden. And so when you're reading scripture, especially the first uh, chapters of Genesis, continuing to move east is symbolic of continuing to stray away from the presence of God. 
It's ironic, uh, considering the feat that they are about to attempt. They're going to attempt to build a tower into the heavens to reach God. And yet this is happening as they move out of the presence of God. So they build in, uh, it says, a plain in the land of Shinar. Uh, This plain is uh, understood to have been between the Tigris and the Euphrates River, uh, the area of the world which we now refer to as Mesopotamia. Uh, Interestingly enough, uh, many anthropologists consider Mesopotamia to be the very cradle of human civilization, where all cultures of the world trace back to Interesting, of course, that the Bible clearly testifies to the truth of that, uh, representing just the factual history of what God's word tells us. And Shinar, the word Shinar in Hebrew, is the word uh, that translates to our English word of Sumerian, which Sumerian is considered to be the first written human language. So all these connections from what we see in the world testifying again to the truth of what God's word reveals to us. And they say, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower. They begin to formulate how, in their own human pride, and their whole own human arrogance, how can they escape from being under the thumb of this God who has just poured out floodwaters upon them. Right? If, if Noah was there, Noah and his sons and grandsons and great-grandsons, of course, the reality of the flood that had taken place not that long ago must have been evident all around them. And it's not surprising that they would want to build a tower into heaven as a means of possibly escaping again the judgment of God. Right? Building high into the sky to escape the floodwaters of God's wrath. It's interesting, too, that we continue, right? Communities and cultures, we continue to be intrigued by seeing how high can we actually build? Right? Why is it that on September 11th, the collapsing of two twin towers not only represented, it wasn't just the destruction of two buildings, it was an assault against the American spirit. Right? They represented our culture. They represented the American spirit. So all throughout the world, we see these tall buildings that testify to human pride. And they say for themselves, let us make a name for ourselves. Now what's interesting is that who who are they making a name for themselves before? These are the only people on the planet at this point in time. They're the only humans occupying earth. So if they're not making a name for themselves before other cultures, because at this point there are no other cultures, they're making a name for themselves to boast before God to stand as an arrogant tribute of their superiority to the God that they do not want to be under. And they're doing this, what do they say, for the purpose of lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. So whereas God commanded Adam to fill the earth and subdue it, they want to take this command and they want to fulfill it by their own means. Right? They, they don't want to do it according to how God has called them to do it, not according to his plan, but through their own means. Uh, one commentator has uh, gave an interesting description of uh, what does it look like to build an empire all throughout history, right? We know empires have risen and fallen. And there were two things that this commentator said that every government that seeks to build an empire requires. First, it needs a center of unity. And here we have the Tower of Babel, the center of human pride and arrogance. And they also need a motive for expansion, 
Of course, their motive for building this city and this tower is so that they can make a name for themselves and boast before God. And of course, we see the humor, what God's response is to all of this taking place. Uh, Verse 5, and the Lord came down to see the tower. Right? God has to come down from heaven in order to see this tower that supposedly is piercing into the heavens. Right? He, he has to come down in order to even see what the children of man have been trying to do. And he says, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is the only beginning of what they will do. God in his sovereign wisdom penetrates into the human heart and knows exactly what the heart of mankind desires. And this instance is, is similar. Right? God knows the depths of pride and arrogance and recognizes that if these people, if the people of Babel are able to pursue and to achieve what they are going after, it will not end well for them. And of course, when God says nothing that they do will now be impossible for them, this is not a compliment on God's part, as though God is saying, you know, he's he's not saying, well, look how wise they are. This is him saying the depths of their depravity, if they achieve this, it will be limitless, right? They will continue to rebel against me if civilization remains unified in their pride. Uh, this is, is parallel to what God said to Adam in response to his sin, right? When we read the, the, the account of the fall, uh, the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reached out his hand and also take from the tree of life and eat and live forever, and then he progresses to kick them out of the Garden of Eden. We often read that and might think to ourselves, well, that's interesting. So if if Adam and Eve had eaten of the tree of life, they would have been like God. But that's not what that text means. It means if they had eaten of the tree of life, they would have been forever stuck in their state of fallenness. And so God, in his mercy, kicks them out of the garden so that there is that possibility and that reality of redemption. Similarly here, why does God divide these people and divide these languages? In one sense, it is certainly an act of judgment against their human pride. But in another sense, it is an act of God's mercy. Because him knowing the depravity of the human heart, he recognizes and knows full well what will happen if they continue to pursue this rebellion. So God dispersing Babel, he confuses their languages so that they, it says, they left off building the city. Right? They're no longer able to achieve what it is that they want to pursue and to achieve. And of course, it is named Babel. If you've read scripture, you know that the name Babel is used all throughout the Bible, especially in the book of Revelation, as a symbolic representative of sinful human government and pride that seeks to build itself together, to unite together, and oppose the Creator. Right? Babel is used as an image of human arrogance and of human pride. And even our English word, Babel, it means unintelligible speech. And so Babel which becomes Babylon, right? The great empire that took Israel into captivity stood as a biblical symbol for mankind's rebellion. And so all through this, 
Right? This, is, this is not a good end of the story. God disperses them across the face of the earth. He gives them over to their sinfulness, which is what Romans 1 tells us what God does when people continue to want to persist in their rebellion. He gives them over to rebellion and to perversion. And this is what leads to the very next event that takes place in the coming chapters of the book of Genesis. So what's next? What, what takes place after this event at Babel? Well, the very next chapter begins the grand history of the patriarchs, right? A single man from a single family in a single nation named Abram is called out from all the people of the earth, right? God begins his storyline with the nation of Israel, with one specific man. And of course, we know as believers, we know that God uses the nation of Israel to declare his glory in front of the other nations and ultimately to bring forth the Messiah, right? The line of the children of God cultivating in Jesus Christ. So what does Babel tell us? What does the events of Genesis chapter 11 tell us about what God is doing? Well, the first is that the entire scope of Language of culture, of civilization derived from this very moment in history of God pouring out his judgment upon the people of Babel. Our language groups such as Mandarin, Spanish, Swahili, Russian, English, Portuguese, Arabic, Punjabi, Hindi, Bengali, Japanese, countless different language groups. Linguists say that there's approximately 7,100 different language groups in the world today. Not to mention the many language groups that have been extinct. These all trace back to this one event in Genesis chapter 11. And at the same time, the nature of strife between human cultures and between civilizations also pins back to this very moment in Scripture. As cultures develop their own norms, their own symbols, their own beliefs and rituals, and of course their own languages which all throughout human history have caused strife, have caused division, bloodshed. All of those moments of one culture trying to exert its authority or power over another stem back to the very moment of Babel. So in the first chapters of Genesis, from 1 to 11, we see the entire culmination of mankind's separation and division between relationships at the fall, we see the division of mankind and God, radical separation. At the flood, we see the division between mankind and nature as the floodwaters pour out as God's judgment. And then here at Babel, we see the outpouring of division between man and man. Strife. But ultimately, that's, of course, we know the end, not the end of the story. Because the events of Babel propelled redemptive history into the next steps of what God was going to do as he covenanted together with one nation, this tiny little nation in the Middle East, for the very purpose of the redemption of his people. For the very purpose of bringing forth the one, the word made flesh, who would atone for the sins of all of his people. 
And so between Babel and Pentecost, we have most of the storyline of Scripture. Right? From Genesis chapter 11 to Acts chapter 2, we have 80% of the Bible between those two chapters. And so now we look at Pentecost, right? the reversal of Babel in redemptive history. Uh, this, of course, takes place after Christ has ascended back into heaven, after his 33 years of ministry, his horrible death, his uh, del- uh, just glorious resurrection, his appearance to his disciples. And then he tells his disciples to go to Jerusalem and wait for the outpouring of the Spirit. He tells them to wait because I'm going to send a helper. And he says, it is good that I would go from you because otherwise I would not be able to send the helper, but I will send the Spirit who will empower you and embolden you to take the gospel to the nations. And so let's look at Pentecost now. Let's, let's flip over to the next story of Pentecost. In chapter 2, it begins when the day of Pentecost arrived, and knowing the history of Israel, the day of Pentecost is also called the Feast of Weeks, which took place 50 days after Passover. And of course, we know the tie between Passover and Christ's atoning work as he was uh, the, the, the final events of his life revolved around the holiday of, of Passover and Christ becoming the final Passover lamb sacrificed once for all time for the remission of sins. And likewise, this ultimate and final day of Pentecost, 50 days after the final and perfect Passover, in which the Spirit of God descends upon the disciples. What's interesting is that Uh, Other translations read, when the day of Pentecost was being fulfilled. I personally like that translation as it points forward to the fact that this is a final event. This is a, a glorious and beautiful final fulfillment of what the day of Pentecost and the Feast of Weeks was always meant to point forward towards. And it says, uh, the disciples, they were all together in one place. Note again the parallel between the people of Babel who were congregating together and the disciples who are now all in one place in Jerusalem. And there comes from heaven a sound like a mighty wind. So just as Christ had ascended into heaven just not that long before, the Spirit now descends from heaven and rests upon the heads of the disciples. And similarly, as how God came down from his throne to see Babel and to see the arrogance of human pride, here God comes down the Spirit in order to bring power and to restore these languages back together. And they're called divided tongues in verse 3. Interestingly enough is that this word here, divided, uh, which is diamersio, is the exact same word that Peleg's name as we talked about just previously, uh, means in the Old Testament. They both are the same exact word for divided. So as Peleg symbolized the dividing of languages, now all of these divided tongues are coming down to reunite the people. They're reunited through these divided tongues. And so they come down in tongues of fire, and all the disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, when we look at the Old Covenant, right, the Old Testament, the history of Israel, uh, there were moments in time when the Holy Spirit descended upon specific people for 
specific purposes. For example, the first two individuals in all of Scripture that are attested to have had the Holy Spirit um, was Bezalel and Aholiab, who were uh, part of the artisans that helped construct the tabernacle. It says that the Holy Spirit indwelt them so that they could follow all of the, the directions that God has, had given the people of Israel for the construction and furnishing of the tabernacle. So those are the first two people. Uh, likewise, the, the prophets, of course, were fulfilled with the Holy Spirit. Um, there's an accounting in the book of Numbers uh, where uh, two prophets are also said to have filled with the Holy Spirit, Eldad and Medad. And the people go running to Moses complaining that these two men, these two prophets, were proclaiming God's word through the power of the Spirit. Listen to what it says. A young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. Right? Joshua is asking Moses to stop Eldad and Medad from prophesying. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were a prophet, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. So in the Old Covenant, the Spirit was not a reality for most of the covenant people of Israel. Right? The Spirit was poured out upon specific people for a specific purpose, and then oftentimes it would go away. Of course, we know King Saul. It speaks of him having the Spirit upon him, and then it leaves. It leaves from him. So the reality of the Holy Spirit was not something that was present for the Old Covenant community. But then if we continue, uh, if you look at uh, the next portion of the book of, of, of Acts chapter 2, uh, Peter proclaims that all that has taken place is the direct fulfillment of the words of Joel chapter 2, which speaks of the last days coming and taking place, and that the Holy Spirit is then poured out upon all of God's people. Of course, we know that that is one of the marks, one of the things that separates the new covenant from the Old Covenant is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of all of God's people. And as the story moves forward in, in chapter 2, it speaks of these people, these Jewish people in Jerusalem, and it says, from every nation under heaven. Now, um, some skeptics have looked at this and said, okay, well, clearly there weren't people from every nation under heaven. I'm sure there weren't, you know, people from China or people from Mesoamerica. Um, and, and so they look at this and they try to say, well, okay, God's word is, is errant here. But when we look at this, every nation under heaven, and then it looks at, uh, it, it gives the description of all of the people, all of the, the nations and areas of the world that are represented. What is so very fascinating about this list of people is that if you map over these areas where these Jews are from, and you compare that to the table of nations in chapter 10 of Genesis which comes right before Babel, they are identical. So the table of nations, the descendants of Shem, of Ham, and of Japheth, directly match over the group of all of the Jewish people, the devout men from every nation under heaven that are here at the day of Pentecost. These multitude of people come together and they are bewildered. Right? It says, bewildered, amazed, and astonished because each one hurting a disciple speaking in their own language. So unlike Babel, where the people came together to proclaim their own pride and their own arrogance, 
These people are coming together because they know something miraculous is taking place. And each one of them proclaims, we understand what is being said in our own language. So in all likelihood, these people would have spoken the the trade language of Greek, and in Judea specifically, it would have been Aramaic. And so the gospel message moves beyond just the common language, and each one hears in their own heart language, their own mother tongue from the areas that they are from. Right? They each hear the gospel proclamation in their own language. And it says that there are Jews and proselytes together. So here already we see this notion of Gentiles being grafted in into the covenant community. Though it is Jews ethnically that are there, there are also Gentiles who have been united to Israel through, uh, through the covenant. Right? So it's no longer focused already. This, this expansion of the kingdom of God beyond the scope of Israel is taking place. And they hear proclaimed, I love this phrase, it says, the mighty works of God. The redemptive story, the gospel, which culminates in the life of Christ and is poured out upon all of them there at the day of Pentecost. Verse 13, And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. It's interesting, this phrase. They say, What does this mean? Right? Even though they... They hear the message that's being proclaimed. They still need someone to explain what is going on. Right? Think of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. He has the scroll of Isaiah. And he's reading it, and, and Philip comes upon him on his chariot and says, Do you understand what this means? And clearly, uh, the, the eunuch can, can read it. He can read the language, but he still needed Philip to explain it to him, and that's exactly what the eunuch said. He said, How can I understand this unless someone explains it to me? Listen to what Romans 10, what Paul says in Romans 10. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless someone is sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So they still need, even though they are are hearing the gospel in their own language, and that's not enough, right? They need the work of the Spirit in their own lives. They need their dead hearts to be made alive. They need to be given ears to hear through the powerful working of the Spirit and the providence of God. And yet, even in the light of this, of course, it's, it, as we see, there were others mocking, right? Saying they're, they're filled with new wine. They're accusing the disciples of being drunk, they're ridiculing the disciples and claiming that they are drunk. But as we see this, may we be reminded of the fact that even when we preach the gospel, we do not have power over how people respond to our message. Right? The parable of the sower, we are to be the ones who spread the seed, and the end result is the power of God. It is the work of God. It's, it's nothing that we can do to force someone to understand our message. 
Right? Paul speaks of it being God who gives the growth. Though we plant and we water, it is God who gives the growth. So when we look at, at Pentecost, right? we look at Babel, and we look at Pentecost, we see this grand reversal as the divided languages are brought together so that the united languages, all hearing the same message, can go and spread back out to the ends of the earth. So what is this judgment on Babel, and what does this blessing on Pentecost reveal to us about God's plan throughout history? I want to look at the where, the why, the when, the who, and the how of, of Pentecost. So where? Where did Pentecost take place? It took place in the city of Jerusalem, what was once the holy city of God, which becomes the birthplace of the early church and becomes the epicenter of the grand missionary task of taking the gospel to the nations and the expansion of the kingdom of God. When did this take place? Well, Babylon, or, uh, uh, Pentecost took place right after the ascension of Christ as he ascended back to the right hand of the Father, which, of course, Psalm chapter 2 says he is making his enemies a footstool for his feet. Likewise, Jesus, in his own ministry, predicted that the strong man would be bound, that Satan would be bound so that he could no longer deceive the nations. Right? So the fact that Pentecost took place directly after the ascension of Christ is an encouragement to us to know that Christ is truly making all of his enemies a footstool for his feet. And that he is reigning and ruling over the kingdom of the world. And that he is bringing his people to himself. Well, who does God use in this moment of Pentecost? Here we see the disciples. At this point, there was only uh, 11 of them. And uh, they would soon, of course, have Matthias with them. These weak, frail vessels. These men who, when Christ was in his most needy hour, they all deserted him. Right? They fell asleep as he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. They ran for their lives when Christ was crucified. And yet these men, these disciples become the catalyst that God uses, these frail human vessels that God uses to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And of course, the Apostle Paul, the last person anyone would have expected to become the great missionary of the church, the persecutor of Christians, God used the most unlikely people, which, unlike Babel, again, where these people tried to proclaim their own fame, God used the weakest in the world to demonstrate that the expansion of the kingdom has nothing to do with our own human strength. Right? When I think of what my family is trying to endeavor and we're, what we're pursuing, so I oftentimes ask myself, what, what am I doing? Right? Who, I am just this poor, broken, sinful, weak vessel. But that's the testimony of each and every one of us that are true believers, right? As we, as we take the gospel to our neighbors and the nations. That's the where, the when, and the who. Next is the what. Right? What took place at Pentecost? Pentecost was the very birthplace of the church. 
And the church is, of course, the embassy of Christ's kingdom, local churches specifically being outposts of Christ's kingdom throughout the world. And so this is why when we consider the task of missions, planting local, healthy, strong churches needs to be our ultimate goal. Right? This, is the, this is the storyline of Acts as Paul journeys and plants church and raises elders and uh, pursues conversions for the people there. He, he goes pursuing the establishment of healthy churches. And again, unlike Babel, where they were trying to build this great city and this great tower, our churches oftentimes are small. What the world would see as insignificant. Right? There's nothing about our churches that someone from the outside looks and say, wow, that's, that's, you know, that's powerful, that's something groundbreaking. But of course, under the power of the Spirit, we know that it truly is the, the local church individually, but also the global, universal, entire body of Christ is what God uses to proclaim the kingdom. And lastly, the why. Right? Why did God use both the division and the unification of language for these purposes? And what I can demise from all of these, these truths of Scripture is that God is truly glorified in the beauty of cultural diversity, of ethnicity, of peoples, of tongues, and of cultures. Right? We don't all go to churches that do the same thing, that look the same. Right? Our brothers and sisters around the world use different worship, right? different songs, different instruments. Right? We meet together in buildings that look vastly different. Many churches around the world don't have a building and they meet in someone's, you know, someone's living room. Or they meet in a hut. Or they meet wherever they can because they're persecuted and they have to use what they have. But these all testify to the fact that God is glorified in diversity. In the diversity of the body of Christ of ethnicity, of language, of culture. These are things that truly delight God. Because the one thing that holds all of us together is the most important thing, right? The blood of the Lamb, which unifies us through the blood of Christ. That was poured out on our behalf. So how can we be encouraged by this? Three points of application first of all, is the plan. Right, as we've seen, the, the divine plan of redemption, the Trinitarian covenant from eternity past to redeem a people for himself has always and will always include the salvation of the elect from the ends of the earth, from north, south, east, and west. And therefore, we have to have that same goal in mind as we seek to align our desires and our pursuit with the divine plan of God, we ought to have a passion to see God glorified through the diversity of God's people. Listen to Micah 4. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And it shall be lifted up above the hills. 
And peoples shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. What a glorious picture of what eternity is going to look like when Christ returns and what is already being achieved through the redemption of God's people. Right? As people from nations and tribes that have been at war with one another historically come together under the blood of Christ, right? We see Russians and Ukrainians that proclaim the same gospel, though their nations are at war with one another, and yet their allegiance is to their king, right? Not to any national geopolitical civilization. So that's the plan. Next is is the power, right? How do we pursue this great commission? What is the power by which we are unified? And of course, this can only be the cross of Calvary uh, through which the nations will be made glad, right? There's no other name under heaven by which man can be saved other than the name of Christ. And so we cannot go to the nations proclaiming any other gospel than the gospel we have been given, which is the gospel of the very word made flesh. John chapter 12, Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the rulers of the world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. This grand picture of what Christ did in redeeming people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So the plan, the power, and finally, the perseverance. Right As the Holy Spirit indwelled the early church, they empowered them and pushed them forward in order to endure some of the worst hardships we can imagine, right? We know the life of Paul. He testifies to all of the persecution and hardship that he had. I mean, if I was shipwrecked once, I think I might be done. I'd be like, all right, that was enough for me. He endured it countless times. He was beaten. He was whipped. He was flogged. He was stoned, dragged out of cities. Of course, we know... Uh, the, the, the historical tradition of how many of the disciples died. Right? Peter was crucified upside down, and who on earth would give their lives in these ways for something they did not know with confidence was true? And so we persevere. Though many of us haven't faced nearly the type of persecution that the early church did or that many of our brothers and sisters do around the world, persecution, of course, has many different forms. And just as the Spirit empowered the early church, the Holy Spirit is the same Spirit which indwells us as believers and empowers us to persevere in the midst of hostility, regardless of what comes. Right? So we must heartily take up the mantle and take the gospel to the nations, knowing that it is God alone who will preserve us through his grace. And in conclusion, I want to read just from Revelation chapter 7. The grand picture that we see at the end of time. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, 
with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our great God, it is is truly overwhelming to consider the need of this world. It's overwhelming to consider how many people, how many language groups, how many nations and cultures there are in this world that continue in their blindness to rebel against you. And each of us sitting here that are truly believers, are a testimony to the missionary endeavor of someone else. Right? We are all here because you empowered your church to take the gospel to the nations. And each one of us is a result of someone faithfully proclaiming the gospel to us, who in turn had the gospel preached to them. And this is the testimony that you have given us through your word and through the ways that we can trace our heritage and our salvation. Father, we thank you for sending your Son. Your Son who atoned for the sins of men and women from every nation on the earth and from every people group. Who broke down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, between rich and poor, men and women, slaves and free. So that There is nothing in this world that can keep believers separated. There's nothing that can segregate us as we are united under the blood of Jesus Christ. And thank you for sending your spirit upon your disciples and upon us, your children, on the day of Pentecost. Thank you for indwelling us and giving us a guide in this life that we might walk in obedience to you with the power of the gospel. Thank you for giving us the spirit which convicts us of our sin, which grows us in sanctification, and which empowers us as we seek to faithfully obey your commands. Lord, may we reflect on this day the Trinitarian beauty of the gospel, one in three, three in one, unity in diversity. And may we seek that as our goal as we proclaim the gospel and proclaim the kingdom to this world, seeking unity in diversity. Lord, we ask that this would be our vision, that we would see the nations be made glad. And ultimately, that one day we would see the glorious delight of your glory being proclaimed around the throne of the Lamb. Lord, help us as we reflect upon this. Thank you for your word. And we ask all these things in the powerful and mighty name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.